Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The Autobiography of a Face is a personal historical journal written by Lucy Greeley, a woman who has suffered from Ewing's sarcoma, a cancer of the jaw that is 90% fatal in a few years. Her cancer was first diagnosed when she was about nine years old. She had a large part of her lower jaw removed when she was about nine and a half years old, and for two and a half years thereafter, had weekly chemotherapy treatments. Throughout her teenage years, Lucy Greeley had many surgeries to reshape her jaw. Luckily, in her case, the cancer was not fatal. Instead, it brought about many intense and difficult to imagine emotional experiences. Lucy Greeley recorded her thoughts and ideas in her book, The Autobiography of a Face, first published in 1994, which discusses her experiences, her mistaken conflation of beauty and love, and what she learned about emotions, both her own and other people's. I spoke with Lucy Greeley in the winter of 1994 and asked her about the underlying theme that seems to be prominent throughout her book, Love and Beauty. I think what happened for me was that, like so many people, I confused the word love and beauty. I thought that I had to be beautiful in order to be loved. And... It took me a very long time to understand that the word beauty is really a label. And even when you say things like, you know, I want to be beautiful, you don't even say what you want to be a beautiful what. You know, beautiful isn't actually a a noun, but we treat it all the time as if it were a noun. You know, say, I am beautiful, he, she, it is beautiful. You know, as if it were this thing. You know, when the truth is, it's really just sort of a subject heading, as it were. And there are all these things that come under the heading of beauty, those things being um, grace and happiness and feeling loved. But we somehow lose sight of that and we just go for the label. You know, it, it works the same, I think, with money. You know, you think if you have money, you're going to then be secure and confident and at ease. So you go after money because those are the things you want. And I think a lot of people end up going after beauty because what they really want is to feel secure and at ease and loved in the world. And, you know, instead of going for those things, they go for something which is this false label for it. And it works in reverse to, I think, with the word ugly. Ugly is also this label that's applied to other things, and those things are, you know, a sense of isolation and fear in the world. And so rather than trying to avoid those things or rather look those things in the face and by that way learn how to stop them or turn away from them, we think mainly in terms of ugliness. Like I spent a lot of my life not being able to distinguish the difference between being uh, depressed and being ugly. I really thought they were one and the same thing. And when I was having a bad day, I would say I'm ugly rather than I'm depressed because I didn't know the difference between the two things. What brought about uh, the change to realize the difference between the two? Um, I don't think there was one thing. I think it was really just a process of 
extricating myself, really, uh, really examining the world, the world I was in and the way that I was in the world, um, and seeing how those things really worked and fit it together and what produced what. And, you know, I, I would meet beautiful people and they wouldn't be happy with, you know, what they had. You know, and I would look at them and think, well, why aren't they happy? You know, if I had that, I'd be happy. And then I would realize that um, a lot of people would say that about me, you know, like people in third world countries, people in wars or famines, you know, would give anything to be, you know, a white middle class girl in America. And it didn't matter the fact that I was sick or disfigured. It was still better than what they had. And even as I knew that intellectually, it didn't always make it emotionally viable. I wasn't always emotionally able to appreciate what I had. But it was just a process of really sort of looking at myself very honestly. And when I say look at myself, I mean scrutinize my emotions very carefully. In your experience, um, what do you find in our culture that equates uh, beauty with happiness, that teaches um, that? I think that the easier question is, what, what do I don't find? You know, it, it's really pretty much everything works that way, one way or another. And not even necessarily because um, it's false. You know, beauty actually can uh, make happiness or... Well, I guess what I mean by that is it's, it's not true that money will make you happy, but it is true that poverty breeds despair, um, and it works the same with, with beauty. It's not true that beauty will make you happy, but being uh, unbeautiful or, or ugly is a way of being miserable, too. Like, you're more likely to be miserable. Um, so it's, if you look around you, it's really sort of everything is a variation of those uh, bits of fact, you know, and some of it, it really comes down to the form. If you look at commercials, I mean, it, it's really ludicrous how much they're equated, but, you know, you can look in really much more subtle uh, parts of the world, too, in, in literature and things, and it, it's the same equation, and it's really a process of learning how to recognize the equation and refuse it or turn away from it. How would you describe that equation? Um... I don't know if I could describe it exactly, but, um, you know, the, the simplified equation would be if, then, as in, if I have this, then I will be happy, uh, which is just, you know, desire is a way of making yourself incomplete. If you desire something, then you put yourself in this state of eternal subjugation to the future, this future which will provide you with the thing that will make you whole, so then you'll be whole when you get this thing. And, the necessary implication of that is that you're un incomplete now. So uh, I think it's really the equation that results in feeling that you're incomplete and will not be complete until this other thing arrives in your life. Will you talk a little bit in your book about how you uh, decided that desire is something that you would be free of and, and uh, developed an ability to detach yourself from your desires? Is that still the person you are? Um, I don't think so, and I don't know if I ever really did develop that ability. I just tried to. Um, I thought that my desires were causing me pain. You know, just that the ancient Buddhist uh, tenet, you know, that desire equals suffering. But um, I think I was doing it wrong. In fact, I know I was doing it all wrong because I was um, thinking that rather than 
really understand the nature of desire and thus see its falsity in that way, I have to kind of suppress it or repress it. Lucy, um, the, ex the issue of desire seems to me to uh, merge into an individual self-image uh, and, and what a person wants out of life. Mm -hmm. What would you say to that? Um, I think it's a really complicated question. Um, it's not so, I, I, unless I'm misunderstanding you, I think you're asking like how, something about how our desires shape us. Right. Is that, um, I think that's probably true. I think it's also the way, like what we desire become our, our manifest, the manifestations of who we are. And the, uh, especially when our desires get complicated. Like I think we all have pretty basic desires, which is not to be afraid and not to be alone and to be um, safe, happy, and warm. You know, which are pretty basic. And then the... You know, we're such complicated creatures with these really complicated egos. And society is so complicated that it gets really convoluted and that we start thinking, you know, what we really want is like some bizarre, exotic relationship with in a really, like, bizarre, exotic country. And, you know, forgetting that it really just goes down to something very basic. Then... It seems to me the the issue of desire and in, in what we achieve or what we fail to achieve blends so closely into the identity of who a person is. Mm -hmm. How have you found that to be in terms of the experience that you are having uh, being in San Francisco, uh, traveling around and talking about your book, which talks so much about a personal experience in your life, your your really your autobiography. Um, I don't think I'm sure I understand the question. Could you, could you rephrase the question for me? Sure. What I'm looking for is your comments on um, the identity that you see has developed uh, for yourself based on the desires that that you have had growing up with the life that you've had, with oh, okay. the surgical experiences that you've had, and seeing seeing yourself as you are? Um, I think it, since, since I wrote the book, it's funny, uh, there's a lot of things that have happened to me. I've done a lot of media, and I get recognized a lot, and I find myself, you know, in front of audiences and on national television with millions of people watching me. And in one sense, I'm very sort of naive, and I forget that I'm actually ha not having this, like, private conversation that, you know, quite a few people are going to be listening in, and so I sort of just go with the flow, as it were. But it's also part of a, you know, the fulfillment of the fantasy I had when I was very young, which was to be special. And now it's a different type of specialness, but it's still attention. And I've always loved attention in, in any form, even... Even when I was getting all this attention for being disfigured, and I, I hated it on one level, but at the same time, I understood that I never had to struggle with uh, something that most people do have to struggle with, which is the fear of fading into the background. You know, in some ways, it's false, because ultimately I will fade into the background, because I'll die, but um, I didn't have to face it on a sort of an everyday level. 
Do you find that that experience is is really different from the experience you perceive uh, the rest of us are having? Um, no, I think it's just a little more um, focused in some places and unfocused in others. It's just, I mean, you know, I'm just really like everybody else. I'm just a human being. I just, ha- I think I'm very lucky to be honest because I've had all these opportunities to, you know, go places I never would have gotten to go to and. You know, I mean that emotionally and physically, and just live, have a sort of peculiar angle on things that most people don't have the opportunity to experience. Maybe you could share some of those with us. Um, you mean specifically? Yeah, some of the emotional places that you've been able to go to and, and the well, peculiar experiences. I think um, because I had... I had this one thing that I thought was wrong with my life, which was my face. Like, all of my fears, all of my desires, all of my pains, everything got kind of, you know, focused on that one point. And I really thought that if I could just fix this, everything would be great. And what I think what happened is that things got so centralized, as it were. Everything that was wrong was centralized onto this one point that I was able to... Imagine what my life would be like if that point were fixed. And I was able to imagine it in such a way as to understand that really the, the, the imagining of joy, if you can imagine what it's like to be happy, then you can actually be that thing, that it doesn't have to be a state of action. Like most people think that you have to be confident in order to act confident, that you have to be brave in order to act brave, that you have to sort of be happy in order to live happily. And I think I discovered that those things aren't states of being, that they're, but rather that they're states of action. If one acts confidently, then one is confident. And uh, it doesn't necessarily follow that you, if you act happy, you are happy, but that if one acts as if one is living a full life, then one is living a full life. So imagination then uh, breeds the action? I think so. I mean, yeah, I, I really believe that there's, there's a link between them and that it doesn't... You know, I think most people feel a sort of sense of incompletion in their lives, the sense that something is lacking, which on one level they should because things are, they are missing from our lives. Just being a human... Being, there's like a sort of sadness to that, which Freud talked about a lot. But there's, you know, like once one can identify that sadness is part of the act of being alive, then you don't have to worry about it as, as much and think that it's a sadness that comes about because your, you know, your car isn't fast enough, or your face isn't beautiful enough, or you're not a good enough businessman or something like that. Can you talk a little more about the sadness of being a human being? Um, well, I think a lot of other people have probably said a lot better than, than I have. But just, I mean, being alive is, is a necessarily sad thing at, at points. Um, just being being alive and being mortal, like understanding that one day you'll die is, is something that's, you know, it's sad. And in, in that sadness, I think there's a great deal of beauty, you know, and that most beauty is linked with a great deal of sadness. Let me take a moment and say that you're listening to Government Politics and Ideas. My guest is Lucy Greeley, 
the author of a book called The Autobiography of a Face, recently published by Houghton Mifflin. Lucy, um, would you be able to read us a portion of your book that uh, might be appropriate? Of course, it would be a pleasure. The following spring, on one of the first warm days, I was playing with an old friend, Teresa, in her neat and ordered backyard when she asked, completely out of the blue, if I was dying. She looked at me casually, as if she just asked what I was doing later that day. The other kids say that you're slowly dying, that you're wasting away. I look at her in shock. Dying? Why on earth would anyone think I was dying? No, I replied in the tone of voice I'd have used if she'd asked me whether I was the Pope. I'm not dying. When I got home, I planned to ask my mother why Teresa would say such a thing. But just as I was coming through the front door, she was entering from the garage, her arms laden with shopping bags. She took a bright red shirt out of a bag and held it up against my chest. It smelled anew, and a price tag scratched my neck. Turtlenecks are very hard to find in short sleeves, so I've brought you several. I was still a tomboy at heart and cared little about what I wore, just as, just as long as it wasn't a dress. But turtlenecks, why on earth would I want to wear a turtleneck in the spring? I didn't ask this out loud, but my mother must have known what I was thinking. She looked me straight in the eye. If you wear something that comes up around your neck, it makes the scar less visible. Genuinely bewildered, I took the bright-colored pile of shirts down to my room. Wouldn't I look even more stupid wearing a turtleneck in the summer? Would they really hide my scar? I hadn't taken a good, long, objective look at myself since the wig fitting, but that seemed so long ago, almost two years. I remembered feeling upset by it, but I conveniently didn't remember what I'd seen in that mirror, and I hadn't allowed myself a close scrutiny since. I donned my short sleeve turtlenecks and finished out the few short months at elementary school. I played with my friend Jan at her wonderful home with its several acres of meadow and, most magnificent of all, a small lake. There was a rowboat we weren't allowed to take out by ourselves, but we did anyway. Rowing it to the far shore a mere eighth of a mile away, we'd land and pretend we had just discovered a new country. With notebooks in hand, we logged our discoveries, overturning stones and giving false Latin names to the newts and various pieces of slime we found under them. Jan had as complex a relationship to her stuffed and plastic animals as I had to mine. And when I slept over, we'd compare our intricate worlds. Sometimes, though not too frequently, Jan wanted to talk about boys, and I'd sit on my sleeping bag with my knees tucked up under my nightgown, listening patiently. I never had much to offer, though I had just developed my very first crush. He was on Omar Sharif. Late one night, I'd stayed up and watched Dr. Zhivago on television with my father. Curled up beside him with my head against his big stomach, I listened to my father's heart, his breathing, and attentively watched the images of a remote world, a world as beautiful as it was deadly and cold. I thought I would have managed very well there, imagine that I would have remained true to my passions had I lived through the Russian Revolution. I, too, would have trudged across all that tundra, letting the ice sheet over me and crackle on my eyebrows. For weeks, I pictured the ruined estate where Zhivago wrote his sonnets, aware that the true splendor of the house was inextricably bound to the fact that it was ruined. I didn't understand why this should be so, and I didn't understand why reimagining the scene gave me such a deep sense of fulfillment, nor why the fulfillment was mingled with such a sad sense of longing 
No wisest longing only added to the beauty of everything else. Let me say once again that the passage that you heard comes from a book called The Autobiography of a Face. It's written, and what you just heard was read by the author, Lucy Greeley. Lucy, judging one's life, how do you go about judging your life, and how do you see other people uh, going about judging their lives? Um, I think I need to know really what you meant by judging. You know, that you mean like making decisions and uh, assessing what meaning your life has? Because... If that is what you mean, I don't know if I could really answer it because it's such a, a large question. And to, you know, the very act of judging, the dangers of it exist in the fact that something so large as a life can't be judged. You know, it can be neither right nor wrong. It just is what it is. Well, people feel I'm successful or I'm not successful. Mm-hmm. I wish that I had done something different. Um, you talk about uh, in your book of of making um, making a decision to be here now to accept the reality that uh, that we possess at the moment. Uh-huh. Um, I think um, again it, it comes through learning to recognize what is your your own true feeling about a thing and not a, a feeling that's been sort of handed to you by you know, the, the superstructure of, of society or even civilization or culture. You know, recognizing what is your own voice and, and what are other voices trying to invade your territory, as it were. Um, well, how do, from your experience, uh, do you recommend that one tries to identify that, seek out your own voice and find out when somebody is closing it down? I think it relates to something I was talking about earlier, which is um, learning to recognize labels. And, and rhetoric for, for us false things. You know, which people really don't seem to be able to do much these days. I mean, if you look at the political scene, you know, labels just get tossed around all the time and nobody ever, you know, and it's, you know, the, the Republicans say tax and spend Democrats. You know, so tax and spend has become this label, this big bad label, and completely shuts down the opportunity to discuss that you know, maybe raising taxes is actually what needs to be done. You know, just it's just labeled as this evil thing, and all possibility of debate or discussion becomes shut down. You know, and that's like a a political example, but it happens, you know, on the emotional micro inner scale all the time in the same way. You know, with um, you know these labels of I'm ugly or I'm not rich enough. You know, you know, kind of shut down the possibility that well. Maybe the decision to be rich, you know, is not something I actually have to make. Um, There's this ancient uh, Greek philosopher called Diogenes who was a, it's pronounced cynic, but it's the um, origin of the word cynic. And he was somebody who rejected the face value of everything. He, He refused to have what he wanted out of life defined for him from the outside, and he saw things, even down to morals and um, social mores and laws and bonuses and rewards and religion and egos as uh, sort of a, a, a movie prize or a, a really sad substitution for what he 
freedom and awareness and joy in living. You know, he felt that he, if he wanted to live in society, he would have to give up those things in a way, which is an extreme example, but um, it, it really holds true today in terms of recognizing when, when you really are yourself and when you're just sort of a, a product of the various forces around you. Lucy, um, you teach poetry now at Sarah Lawrence College, um, and you talk in your book about poetry almost being a religion. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the importance of it for you. Well, I think for me back then when I started doing it, in, um, or writing it rather, in college, it really sort of offered me a form for the things that I'd been thinking a great deal about. Um, especially in terms of uh, labels and rhetoric and, of, and learning how to avoid those things within language and seeing language as something that was really very important as in uh, it, it creating meaning for us and doing it in one, the most like sort of rational way through form and then in the most like irrational, unpredictable, surprising way which of just whatever the mystery of aesthetics is. Especially because I was so concerned with um, beauty. You know, a lot of people have asked me, you know, like, how did you come to write so beautifully? And the answer to that is actually in the question, you know, the word beauty. Um, because I was, that's what I wanted more than anything. And I recognized, you know, even as it broke my heart to think that I would never have physical beauty, I also understood that it was that, even that, physical beauty wasn't real beauty, that it was fleeting and ephemeral, and I, I was seeking it in um, art or, you know, the form in the world. So it was very important to me, both, both as somebody who went through what I went through and then just as a, as a human being anyway. I think I probably would have been a writer anyway. Do you plan to uh, continue to write books, or do you think your focus now is mainly on poetry? Um, I think it will probably trade off. I'm, you know, I'm still going to write poetry, but uh, this is my first prose book, so it's been, you know, it's, it's nice. I, I like writing prose. It was an unexpected pleasure. Lucy, a question that I always like to ask my guests before the close of a program is if um, you could tell us uh, about a book that is important to you that you would recommend to our listeners. Um... Well, I know my favorite book of all time is 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Yeah. <laughs> I was standing in front of the firing squad, and I remembered when my grandfather uh, told me what ice was. So as many years later, as he stood before the firing squad, Colonel Aureliano Buendias was to remember that distant afternoon his father took him to discover ice. Right. <laughs> I love that line. I think it's one of the greatest openings of all time. But, uh, that book is essentially about what fascinates me most of all, which is time and how time works. Because even within that sentence, like you have to ask, when does the book start? Does it start as he's standing there? Does it start back when his father took him to discover ice? Or does it, you know, start in the act of remembrance, which is sort of a bridge between the now and the, the past? And then the the book itself is like this long sort of uh, example of the differences between linear time and cyclical time. 
Lucy Greeley, I want to thank you very much for joining us uh, tonight. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Lucy Greeley is the author of The Autobiography of a Face. The book that she recommends is 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.